Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. Aggressor Adventures. For over 35 years, we've designed adventure vacations around the world, helping travelers experience the majesty of the oceans and the call of the wild on our dive trips, river cruises, and safaris. From the Galapagos Islands and the South Pacific to the land of the pharaohs on the Nile River, with personalized service in every vacation destination. Aggressor. Adventures of a Lifetime. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. Go ahead and do this. Google Terry O'Reilly. If you do, invariably what will pop up first is a famous hockey player for the Boston Bruins. A Canadian, of course, because, well, all great hockey players are born in Canada. But I digress. Because I'm not talking about the six foot one, 200-pound ice bruiser and captain of the Boston team. I'm talking about another giant. A giant in the world of marketing and more specifically, advertising. Throughout my life, I have gravitated towards great storytellers, be it songwriters or radio hosts or filmmakers. I love a great storyteller. There are only a few who are utterly amazing and compelling, and Terry O'Reilly, the radio host, not the hockey player, is right up there at the top of the list. For years, he has hosted radio shows for CBC in Canada, such as O'Reilly on Advertising, Age of Persuasion, and currently his podcast, Under the Influence, which has hit over 50 million downloads. And why? Because of Terry's brilliant storytelling, all backed up by an insane amount of research. What he has to tell you about advertising will absolutely have touched a part of your own life sometime, somehow, and often profoundly. This is a five-part interview, because when Terry and I get talking, aided by just a touch of fine scotch, we are not going to stop for some time. So I've split it up into five segments, where we meander through a series of compelling subject matters. In this part two of the interview, we'll turn to Terry's nearly obsessive love of the Beatles, along with just what it is about advertising that fascinated and still fascinates Terry. To set the stage, we were sitting on my deck with a roaring outside fire. In case you're wondering what all that crackling is, with the sun setting on a small Ontario lake. These are the words of Terry O'Reilly. I think there's two kinds of people in the world, Les. There's people who screw up royally and panic and run. And they maybe would abandon their career or they want to recede into the ether. They just want to just run as far as they can from this horrible mistake. 
Then there's the other kind of people that I'm writing about in this book who don't run. They choose not to run. They muscle through it. They make a decision that's interesting, and they find this incredible redemption in their careers. And I think that's the nugget is when you screw up royally, stop and ask yourself, what's the hidden gift? I left you all alone and crying. I poured another glass of wine. But I'll say this, Les, this is why in my career, as often as I could and as often as I can, I still do those talks at schools because I know how much it affected the whole course of my career. It recalibrated my whole direction. Why the Beatles? That has been one of the things that has stuck with me my whole life is my fanatical obsession with the Beatles. It's never waned, which is so odd because so many other passions I've had have, have waned and waxed. I remember seeing the Beatles on some Ed Sullivan show. I was very young and I didn't grasp the concept. I remember asking my dad, why, bo- why are they bothering to sing when everybody's screaming? And I remember him just laughing at that question, but I just literally couldn't figure it out. It was the Beatles cartoon show, Les, that got my brother and I into the Beatles. It was literally their cartoon show where they, you know, was figuring out who's John and who's Ringo and who's Paul and who's George and listening to all those great music tracks that they had. In the, and that was the thing. And, and from that point on, which is probably, I can't remember when those aired. I want to say 66, 67, something like that, 68. Then I started first buying my my first Beatle albums. And it has been... A passion of mine that, as I said, has never waned. I even was a co-founder of a Beatle of a magazine called Beatleology that was published for a number of years for collectors of Beatles memorabilia, which I am, because none of us memorabilia collectors ever knew what anything was worth at any given time. You're a collector, you'll know what that means. So it was a, a magazine for collectors that Sotheby's and all the big uh, auction houses uh, subscribed to because they needed to know what everything was valued. But Beatles was from the my I was in single digit age, probably like seven, eight, nine, and it has been as fanatical to my, into my sixties. I can still remember being very young, though. I'm, I I still remember what the main first song was, and it was Revolution. I can picture myself in the variety store going in to buy some Love Hearts candies and hearing that you know come across the radio. To this day, but and then afterwards, of course, as a as a mature music lover. It just carries on from there. Right. Okay, let's get back on track then. Okay. Um, what took you then? You're finished Ryerson now. And by the way, I will tell you this, Ryerson in the image of the rest of us who didn't go to Ryerson, we always considered Ryerson to be the technical side of everything. Those of us over here at Fanshawe College, we're the real artists. Mm. Like we always thought of ourselves, and true enough, music industry arts. It was, uh, Terry McManus made sure that we focused on the art of making music. He had a sign on his door said, hits only please. And would have us read things later later on that were written by Trent Reznor. Wow. You know, really powerful stuff. But Ryerson seemed to be, from an outsider, like highly technical if you want to learn a lot about the technical side of it. But it sounds to me like you were in a rather artistic It was not, it, we had a technical class. Huh. Most of us were... 
I'll say artists with a small a, we were writers and we were performers and it was nothing, you know, there was maybe one or two guys in every class that were technically brilliant that we would rely on to, you know, plug everything in the right way and get the lighting right. But the rest of us were really into writing and performing and coming up with shows. It was really way more on the artistic side than on the technical side. Yeah, that's just, that's, so then it's a matter of being judgmental from the outside and not realizing what's actually going on in Ryerson. What did you leave Ryerson wanting to do? Ryerson is when I decided that I was going to be in advertising. So every Wednesday we would have a lecture class. So somebody from the industry would come in and talk to us about their career. So it would be, and because it was Ryerson and because it was Toronto, we had wonderful speakers like Lloyd Robertson came in and talked about what it was like to anchor the news. And Bob Hummy came in, the friendly giant, and talked to us about what it was like to create a children's show. And documentary filmmakers came in and... One day, two ad guys came in, and I was sitting at the back of the class where I always sat, as far away as possible, and they started talking about the ad business, and they talked about creativity and strategy and coming up with persuasive ideas and working with actors and going on film location shoots and and the deadlines and everything about... I sat in the back of that room, Les, and I saw my future. I, I just said, there it is. Everything they had just told me. I loved little things that other speakers had talked about, but I loved everything they talked about. And I thought to myself, there's my direction. I am, and I love to write. I'm going to be an ad copywriter. So that's going to be my thing. And that's what sent me on my way. It wasn't a class. There was no advertising classes at Ryerson. It was one talk one morning on a Wednesday that set me off. That's part of my point why I harp so much on the concept of mentorship freely given. Those guys gave mentorship by coming to the school and just speaking. They got other things. They, could, they want to be doing with their time. They're going to talk to a bunch of 22-year-old students at some college somewhere. They've got a, so, but they did that. And this is why. Your story is why. They, I don't, did, you, did you go down and meet them? I don't think so. No. I don't think I had the courage to go what up about, and talk. What about later in life? Did you remember I, them? I didn't remember who they, I don't know if I ever came across them again, because it was such a gap in time and names, you know, didn't mean that much to me when I was in Ryerson. But, but I'll say this, Les, this is why in my career, as often as I could, and as often as I can, I still do those talks at schools, because I know how much it affected the whole course of my career. It recalibrated my whole direction. What you say really matters, and it might be a 45 minute talk, but sometimes it's only one sentence that just puts someone right, that, oh my God, that connects with, with an individual. Why it's so important to, to go and learn and listen to people like that. Because yeah, you could be bored for 33 minutes, but then all of a sudden they just get on a, on, down a road and you're going, whoa, they're talking right to my soul right now. Right. You know, I've always valued that. In, in a very big way. I, I even, and I, so, and I'm, this might be a stretch, but I'm pulling that into advertising because how vital it is for an advertiser to get something across to me in the 30 seconds they have me for, I or know. 15 seconds. And yet, here I am very much lauding the effects of one line, one sentence, sometimes one look. I mean, do I have to eat the crust? <laughs> that's that should have been you should have actually written that by the way uh, that's that should be in a commercial because it's perfect i'll give you an example of what i'm referencing here when it when it comes to the more serendipitous version of it it's almost like when they didn't mean mean it to happen but uh, I, I love when you hear a profound statement uttered in a silly movie 
the silliest places. Right. An example of that, Men in Black. There's a moment where Will Smith's character is pushing back to Tommy Lee Jones and says, oh, come on, man, we should know this stuff. I mean, you know, people are smart. And he corrects him and goes, no, no, a person is smart. People are stupid, prone to panic and dangerous. <laughs> and I've never, as you can tell, I'm probably misquoting it, but I never forgot. And to me, is that not some of the basis underlying all advertising? This get them with something when you've got them in, in their heart, in their soul. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, even taglines, AKA slogans are still a big part of advertising. That That is an art form. I never thought I was a great slogan writer, even as a, you know, writing commercials for 35 years. I, that was, I never felt I was good at that. And that's really hard to do when you're trying to encapsulate in a very sticky, memorable way, the essence of a company in five words, very hard to do. But a great line in a commercial, well, you see that often where just a commercial will take off because there's a funny line like that great Ikea spot that I love where the woman says she thinks she's been undercharged and she goes running out of the store and yells, start the car to her husband because she thinks she's getting away with not paying full price for something when in fact Ikea was on sale. But anyway, start the car, just a phrase like that in the right context became this meme and became this thing. And that spot ended up airing in many countries performance was great the idea wasn't even big it was a great performance but that line that one line caught fire what are your two or three top favorite lines of all time from commercials from commercials oh boy there's a really good question i know there's a thousand of them yeah well let me think of great lines from commercials um the greatest campaign i think ever done in advertising which i still will look at from time to time and marvel at was for Volkswagen in the early 60s. So the Volkswagen work, think about what Volkswagen was. It was an ugly, underpowered car made by Germans in post-World War II. In an era when Detroit was putting out big, fast cars with tail fins. It lands in North America in 1949, the Volkswagen. It does not sell. Nobody wants to buy a Volkswagen. So they, Volkswagen changes advertising agencies, hires this great New York agency called Doyle Dane Burnback, and they start doing this work for them. And they make the VW the most beloved small car in the world. And all the work they do for them, Les, is smart and funny and self-deprecating. They talk about how underpowered the car is in the advertising. They talk about how ugly it is in the advertising. Like no car maker to this day would talk about how ugly their vehicle is, right? One of the best ads they did was the day after the moon landing, August 1969. You know that crazy landing module that Apollo 11 used to land on the moon? VW just did a full-page ad in newspapers across North America just with a shot of that lunar landing module and the VW logo. And all the headline said was, it's ugly, but it gets you there. (laughs) And I love that line. I love that line. Even an early black and white TV commercial for Volkswagen, you just see this uh, guy gets gets walks out of his house, stormy winter day, snow blowing, gets into his Volkswagen, brushes it all off. The Volkswagen chugs its way through this storm and, and eventually gets to a garage. He gets out, he goes into the garage. You don't see what happens. Then a snowplow comes out of the garage and the, and the line was just, have you ever wondered how the guy that drives a snowplow gets to the snowplow? I remember that commercial. One line in that whole commercial. Yeah. And brilliant. I very likely listened to all of your 
radio slash podcasts uh, over time, originally starting with Age of Persuasion and then then later uh, Under the Influence. And I have absolutely noticed, this, is, this is, shouldn't be a surprise to you at all, but I've absolutely noticed you do have a fascination with, I, I don't want to say the underdog, with the self-deprecation version of advertising. I do. Uh, what's, what's, what's the, uh, med- is it Buckley's Medicine? Tastes terrible. Mm-hmm. You, I, I think you might have even dedicated a show to that at mm-hmm, some point. Mm-hmm. Why, why are you fascinated with that? I do like the underdog in the world. I do, I do cheer the underdog because they have everything going against them in the advertising world in particular. And then bursting through with great thinking and great strategic thinking is a marvel to me. But what you're talking about is, is one of my favorite subjects, is counterintuitive thinking. To say it tastes awful and it works is a slogan nobody would ever do, unless you are really feisty and you can back that up. I mean, even Volkswagen said, you know, we're underpowered, but you'll, you'll, pay, you'll pay so little with fuel. Mm-hmm. You know, like they, they always, they were able to turn a, a negative into a positive every single time. Well, are they not simply playing off honesty? The VW advertising of the 60s was the most honest advertising ever done. Because it was literally, we're ugly, we're slow, you can only get you know, two and a half adults in it. Like everything about it was just, they even had one typical ad would show a Volkswagen Beetle with a, uh, a red police light, like it, like it was a police car. And the headline was, don't laugh. <laughs> like they assumed you knew that it was underpowered, ugly, and, and could never achieve that. What's powerful about that is that they're all so assuming you get the joke. Right. You know them so well. In fact, everybody listening to this right now knows us so well, you get the joke. Well, that was the that was the brilliance of of uh, VW's advertising and Doyle Dane Burnback in particular. They had a, one of the writers had a great line. The line is: Everybody out there has a twelve year old mentality, and every six year old has it. That was the that was the line. I may be screwing it up a little bit, but what they were saying was: Yeah, if you think there's a twelve year old mentality out there, and a lot of advertisers said, you know, I even heard that in some meetings. Like you got to don't forget, there's a twelve year old mentality out there. What Doyle Dane Birnbeck believed in was they, they assumed intelligence. They assumed the intelligence of the listener, of the reader, and they wrote to that. And that's why that work was so revered and so powerful and so effective. That is a thing we have in, in television, even in documentary film work, in producing for the discoveries and the Nat Geos of this world. I have been in meetings where they've said, what about the fat guy in Wisconsin? Yeah, And how do you deal with that? I walk out. I walk away. Now I might not, I'm not so cool that I might walk out in that moment. I just, it's over in my brain and we're done here. As a creator, my thing is I just, I cannot live with myself if, if I'm going to produce pablum for the masses. Yeah. As Volkswagen does, I would rather assume intelligence. And if there isn't any there, well, maybe I can help elevate them a little. That's how I approach filmmaking is, hey, I get this, you know, and, and if you want to accuse me of being a little cerebral, okay. I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah. For the podcast today, from my music catalog, this happens to be a favorite of Terry's lovely wife, Debbie. This, from my album, Wonderful Things, is the song all about being left at home alone, called Another Glass of Wine.
You know what? Aggressor Adventures, while being the largest liveaboard dive operation in the world, is so much more. They have safaris and excursions to the corners of the globe, exciting opportunities to see vast archaeology, history, and natural wonders. I've been traveling and diving with them for years, and I cannot endorse them enough for being simply the best there is at making sure your worldwide adventure is a safe, comfortable, and exciting one. Take it from a guy who has done a lot of adventuring. Who do I travel with on my vacations? Aggressor Adventures. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. You know what? The biggest fights in the advertising world between advertising agencies and their clients is about creativity. But the real fight always is, in my experience over the years, is... When the client says in the meeting, it's really funny, but no one will get it. That kind of a line, mm. which I would always fight back saying, you got it. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, and they, they would assume that they're much smarter than the average person out there, which I always fought. You have, I'm sure you can, you'll back me up on this less. In order to get your greatest work through, you have to put on your armor. You have to fight for every, if it's safe, it's an easy sell. But if it's fresh or if it's interesting or if it's bold, you have to literally fight for it. And I fought for every award-winning commercial I ever had anything to do with. It shaves, I think, years off your <laughs> the end of your life, maybe, because it's, it's a hard fight. I, uh, I, and it's not yelling I'm talking about. It's no. standing firm for what you believe in, right? Being willing to walk out of the room. Being, being willing to walk. Being willing to say no. Being willing to lose what you flew down to Silver Spring, Maryland to get. Right. It's tricky. I referenced this earlier. I was on the phone with a producer who we liked working together. We wanted to do something together. And I said, well, I got this one idea. And this is actually what I said. I said, you know, I mean, we could pull it off pretty quickly. And I, there's no doubt it would make a crap load of money. 
but I, I don't know. I just, I don't really want to do that. I want to do this other thing over here, yada, yada, yada. And she started laughing. She goes, oh my God, Les, do you realize what you just said? You've got something we could produce really quickly and make a shitload of money and that's why you don't want to do it. I said, yeah, that's exactly why I don't want to do it. Converse that now, okay. Uh, again, another moment of mine. And one recently, actually, within the last, well, for sure, within the span of the COVID pandemic, I'm, I was on the phone with uh, Discovery Channel and they were they were almost, I thought, about to say yes to reigniting a, a, a television series I did called Beyond Survival. For the backstory, it's a series about me going out and not only surviving with indigenous cultures, but I also partook in all these uh, ancient earth ceremonies. I drank ayahuasca, I did seed ceremonies and voodoo ceremonies. I was scarified in Africa, tattooed in Indonesia with a stick and a nail. I loved it. It's still my best documentary work to date. By the way, tangent comment, why didn't I do season two? There was a gatekeeper. There was a gatekeeper between me and the network. This particular gatekeeper was a born-again Christian and didn't like the ceremonies. Mm, Pagan? He just said, well, because they were, you know, a voodoo ceremony. Right. He said, no, we just can't be doing any of that. And I thought, his name was Bill. And I thought, come on, Bill. And I didn't, I couldn't really dance around him. And uh, I never did a season two of this Beyond Survival. Okay, so that's the segue. It leads up to where I am a couple, of, bunch of years later. And I talk in a discovery. I said, you know, that series was, Bill's long gone now by yeah, now, right? Right. Oh, we loved that series. Last. Yeah, okay, let's talk about doing it again. Fast forward to a phone call. This will feed into what we're talking about here. Pablum for the masses, if you will. And she said, Les, we've had a meeting and yeah, everybody loves us so much, but we were thinking we really want to stay in the wheelhouse with what's working for us right now. And so we're wondering, do you have anything with nudity or a title that makes people go, whoa? And uh, if you can hear the sound of my heart breaking all over again, my heart just, and I just, I placated her off the phone. I walked into the other room in this house where we are now. Caroline had just had just come off of jet lag and was lying down. I lied down beside her. I said, you know what? I think I just quit TV. Mm. And my point being, this pablum for the masses way of producing things, this easy, easy, mindless, mind-numbing way of being creative, I've never been able to buy into. So this all leads me to a question that I asked you once before. Why is it there? Why is there such horrifyingly bad, low-grade, honestly insulting advertising? Why? Why is it still there when awards are given to such brilliance? There's a lot. That's a complicated question with a complicated answer. There's a lot of, there's a lot of variables there. You're only as good as your client, for starters. I mean, if you have a really smart, wonderful client, you will do wonderful, smart work for them. If you have a brave client, you'll do brave work. You don't win all the battles. When I was saying you put on your armor, you don't win all the battles. I learned how to present early because I had a great mentor, getting back to mentors. My, the very first creative director I ever had with the first big time advertising agency that ever hired me was my mentor. And he taught me how to present an idea in a boardroom, which is an interesting process because he taught me how to create a great lead up to when you reveal the work. And everybody rehearses that in whatever, I'm sure you have to present your work. Everybody rehearses the lead up. He taught me to rehearse the epilogue, which is from the moment you, you reveal your idea to the end of the meeting. He said, that's the part you rehearse. Because the lead up, everybody knows. You're just reiterating what the challenge was or what, what you were briefed to do, which everybody in the room knew. It's when you reveal the idea that everybody starts to panic. So he, he taught me how 
to talk people into an idea while the cement was still wet, which was a really great insight of his rather than, because I've seen a lot of presentations in my life less where someone will, will reveal an idea. They go, and so the idea is this. And there'll be a lot of darting eyes around the room, a lot of silence. And then someone will eventually say, issues, concerns. And he taught me never to present. And I saw so many presentations less that, that went that way. He taught me never to, to present that way. He taught me to, the second you reveal, know that your client's mind is like a pinball machine now saying, it's scaring me. What will they think back at the ranch? What will the president think when I tell them? They're going through all of this in their mind. So you, that's your time when you can calm them down and say, okay, Let's look at we, what we have achieved here. You asked us to do this, and here's where it does that. You've asked us to do that, and here's where it does this. This is nothing like the competitors are doing right now. The tone is exactly on point for your brand. It's bold, but here's why. And talk them. Just keep talking until they, they, they lob their first question and then roll with it. Because if you can do that, you can sell more ideas by being a great presenter. Many times it's not the quality of the ideas that a lot of great ideas die in the boardroom. It's not the quality of the, of the idea that, that someone turns down is that they haven't been persuaded to buy it. Forgive me for relating everything to my experience yeah. as, a, as a film producer. I get all that, but then I thought the elevator pitch was the be all and end all. An elevator pitch is great when you're, for a lot of different reasons. I love elevator pitches because it, it makes you focus your mind on what the essence of an idea is. Explain what it is again. Well, I mean, the, the classic definition of an elevator pitch is, could you describe uh, an idea in a sentence and a half going from the first floor to the second floor in an elevator in the amount of time it takes to do that? Or an escalator pitch when two people are going down an escalator and up an escalator and a down escalator in the moment they pass each other, could you pitch an idea in that time, yeah. right? So I'm a big fan of elevator pitches because it makes you focus your idea. Like it makes you... Be honest with yourself. To, is there an idea there? Because if you can sum it up in a sentence and a half, you've probably got a great idea. If it takes you three paragraphs, you probably haven't distilled your idea yet. So I love elevator pitches. But what I'm talking about in the boardroom is about selling bold. I, what you said, why is advertising so bad? I think because so many advertising people are not great presenters. Wow. Comes not down that they're to not that. great writers or art directors, huh. is they're not great presenters. Because no one teaches you how to present. I got lucky because I had a mentor who was really a fabulous presenter, who could own the room. And, and we would practice, you know, what are all the negative things the client's going to say about this campaign? We would think about all those questions before we went in the room, and we would try and think of meaningful replies, because you never want to get caught flat-footed in a presentation. Because if you get caught flat-footed, it's, aha! You didn't think it through, did you? You always wanted to avoid that moment, right? Did you ever finish a meeting like that going, they just don't get it. They, they don't get it and they're never going to get it. It's freaking brilliant, but they don't get it. Yep. Yep. I'll tell you a great thing about my, that mentor I had as a creative director. He was so, he was a South African guy. He was so great. Like, let's say we presented a great, we believed in it wholeheartedly. We presented it to the client and the client says no. Even though we're, we're giving them the best presentation in the world, they say no. Go back to the drawing board. So we'd head back to the drawing board. We come up with a new idea. We present it to the creative director. And his name was Trevor Goodgall. He's still around. And Trevor would say, that's a really great idea. Now, is it better than the original idea we had? And, and inevitably, often we would say, 
well, no. And he go, okay, we're going back in with the first idea. I, I never had another creative director in my career that had that kind of boldness. Chutzpah. That kind of chutzpah to go back in and say, here's our idea. And then, and then you present exactly what you presented them two weeks before. I, I, I can, I'm, can't remember what the examples are, but I remember you telling stories like that. Also. We never lost an account doing that, by the way, which is an no. interesting insight because you would think, mm. yeah, you could probably pull it off twice and then they'll fire you. We never, we never lost an account. Well, people sometimes have to see or feel your confidence in an exactly, idea, right? Exactly. If you can exude this confidence, it's contagious, contagious. I, I agree with that. And, and they, I think you can get them on occasion to just say, well, man, Les is so fired up about this. Let's just, let's just go with him, see how this works out. You know, right. You can bring them into that. I, I had a, I'll tell you a story. I had, I, I had, I wouldn't do pitches. You can imagine I'm, I'm an okay presenter, but I never did them. I had a bit of a arrogance about me as a producer. I'd, I'd call up discovery or I'd send an email and say, here's my idea. Wow. <laughs> by just, email. By email. Even. Yeah. I'd say this. Well, I used to think if they don't get it in that email, Talk about an elevator pitch. If they didn't get that email, I'm not going to... Well, here's what I refuse to do. I refuse to send them 17 pages with glossy photos and a lot of hyperbole about how this Survivor Man series is going to be the next best thing. I refuse to do that. But I was in a point one time where I needed them to allow me to spread my wings. And I wanted to do the series on Bigfoot and I wanted to do the Beyond Survival series and I wanted to do this, these other series. But let's face it, in the end, still less Stroud... And it was still, all of them still had me on camera and they all still had me filming myself and being in adventure situations. So I went down there first time ever in my entire career. And I was already, this is like 15 years into right. doing what I was doing, but, but I wanted to move forward with a bunch of sort of different initiatives. And I went down there first time ever, went down to Silver Spring, down there lots of times. The first time I went down for a pitch, got in the, I said, I want, I want to pitch to you guys. I, want, I got something I want to pitch to you. And I went down and had four of them in the room, in the meeting room, had a dry erase board. And I said, look, these are the varying ideas that I have that are going to keep me excited as an artist, as a creator. Not that you give a crap, but this is what I care about. And I wrote down, I like Survivor Man Bigfoot, Survivor Man Beyond Survival, Survivor Man. And I had all this stuff, right? Because I knew all they wanted from me was more shelter building and fire starting. That's all they wanted, which, come on, guys, grow up. It's been 15 years. That's all they wanted. So I wrote all these down and and there was about eight or nine titles. They all started with Survivor Man. And I said, now, I know that this thing on this dry erase board makes you nervous because you see me doing Survivor Man and Son and you see me doing Survivor Man Bigfoot and Survivor Man Beyond Survival. But let me show you what the fans see. And I walked over to the board and I took an eraser and I went in one fell swoop. I went down the board erasing everything after the word Survivor Man. I said, there, they see 47 Survivor Man episodes. And they said, Done. Good and then how's it done? Well, that's a persuasive presentation. Oh, right? it was addendum. That was a Friday. And the main person of Discovery poked her head in for a minute. Hi, Les. Good to see you again. Oh, nice to see you too. Yeah. Okay. Well, you guys carry on here. She closed the door and she left. Right. A few minutes. On the Monday, everybody was in that room was fired. What? Yes. And I didn't get anything. And then she called me back. The big wig called me up and said, so Les, I know you had a big long meeting in there with, uh, with Andrea. Uh, can you just sum it up in a couple of minutes? What, what you said? And I just, and I, I said, no, I can't, I can't at all. So right. I've got a bunch of stuff for you. Either you want me on your network or you don't. Like I was, I was pissed. So the presentation thing, that's the one and only one I've done in my whole career. And, and that was a good one. It was a good one. I will yeah. say that. I wish, yeah, I, yeah. I wish I'd filmed it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
So, I mean, but to, to live and die on your presentations, like well, you've had in, to in do. In the advertising industry, it's, it, you are in one presentation after another. Oh. It is, it, well, I don't, like, I just look at it as that was my career. It's just what it was. You went from one presentation to another and you had to get better and better at it. A lot of people were not good at it. A lot of people would not present their own work. They'd let, they'd have to have someone else present it because they, it just wasn't their thing. They could be a brilliant writer but couldn't get up in front of a boardroom. You had to have so much chutzpah. I remember going into my first presentation at Labatt Brewery for this big, big campaign that they were considering us for. They hadn't hired us. And it was a boardroom table, the longest boardroom table less I've ever seen in my life, the most highly polished. There had to be 30 people around this table, 15, maybe even more than that. As far as you could see, there were people down this table. And I was a young guy in my 20s having to get up in front of all these experienced beer guys and try to talk them into buying this big campaign that if they bought it, we would win the business. And I'm 27 years old. So, I mean, you had to get... You had to get courageous. You had to get bold. A lot of people were not comfortable in that scenario of getting in front of people, standing up, being the focus of attention, and being able to do that. And here's the thing, Les. I mean, I, I am intrinsically an introvert. For introverts like me, it takes every molecule of your body to get up in front of a Labatt boardroom and do that thing. But I knew in my career that I had to learn how to do it because my batting average would be 200 instead of 700 if I didn't learn how to present. I am intrinsically an introvert. Terry has a brand new book out, My Best Mistake. It is a brilliant take on the art of moving on from and making the most out of your biggest slash best mistake. That's the end of part two, the opening up of Terry's professional world. If you like this podcast, check out my interview with the legendary producer, Mike Klink, or the rest of this interview with Terry O'Reilly. This podcast is, as the saying used to go, brought to you by Aggressor Adventures. Choose your adventure. Surviving Life with Les Stroud is presented by the Apostrophe Podcast Network and is mixed by Keith Ullman. You're surviving life with me, Les Stroud. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Survivor Man Les Stroud, as I have hundreds of videos there and more going up every week. From Survivor Man Archive to Bigfoot to Wild Harvesting Tips to Urban Disaster Survival. It's all there and it's all free. My brand new series, Wild Harvest, featuring local foraging and turning those wild edibles into sumptuous dishes, is now on National Geographic Asia, PBS stations in the United States, and Cottage Life Television in Canada. The brand new special, Surviving Disasters with Les Stroud, is now on a PBS station near you in the United States or on my YouTube channel. And my brand new children's book, Wild Outside, written for your kids. It's all about getting your kids into the out of doors. And it's out now. Google it. I'm an easy find on Google for those and so much more that I produce during any given year, no matter what's happening on the world stage. We'll figure this life out together. Cue that ripping harmonica solo, Keith. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.